I feel so funny to uh, contemplate the fact that I'm giving the last talk of the retreat. I feel right there with that woman who said, the retreat ends tomorrow? (laughs) So, wherever you are, (laughs) I completely agree. (laughs) But so it is. (laughs) So I want to talk tonight both about leaving the retreat, going back into the world, practice in the world, and the topic of faith. The word in Pali for faith, the word that's usually translated as faith, is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A, and it means to place our heart upon. It means to, to give our hearts, to offer our hearts. The process of offering our hearts in faith relies on some understandings. First, that we have a heart. Second, that the offering is a very precious thing to, to align ourselves with, with someone, with something. It's an extremely precious and rare gift. And it means that we need to carefully examine the recipient of our hearts because delivered over with our hearts is our life's energy. As you have heard so many times in the course of this retreat, the three main um, hindrances or the root of the hindrances are grasping, aversion, and delusion. And each of these, in some ways, I think can be seen as a kind of misplaced faith. It's a way in which we place our hearts, we offer our hearts to the wrong things in the wrong ways without examination. In getting lost in greed or grasping, it's like we're offering our heart to the idea that we can keep change from happening. We can defy the reality of that. We can hold on successfully. That if we are experiencing pleasure, we can keep it. We can preserve it. We can objectify others so that they will continue to please us. We can be in control. That's what we're placing our faith in when we're lost in greed or grasping. And when we're lost in aversion, which is anger or fear, we're placing our hearts on the idea that we can strike out against what's happening, successfully separate from it, declare it to be untrue, deny it, make it not be so. And once again, that we can somehow wrest control over the nature of the universe. And when we place our hearts in delusion... It's a way of saying, if I just shut down, if I cut off, if I numb out, if I go to sleep, then I'll be safe. It'll be okay. I won't have to to encounter change. I won't have to encounter being out of control. It will be just a very nice blur. Mindfulness actually gives us the possibility of seeing those conditioned tendencies quite clearly and in an entirely different way place our hearts upon those elements of life that are true, that are real, that are unifying, that are whole. The first thing we can place our hearts upon, we can hold faith in, is a sense of possibility. It's the recognition that everything is changing all of the time. And that doesn't mean loss and dissolution, things going away. 
It means renewal and beginnings. It means all of it. Everything, every body, every situation is in constant change. We have a tremendous tendency on all levels to try to create solidity as though that would give us security. You can see it in so many ways, big and small. I think about all the times when I've come to the end of a a sitting, a meditation session, and I've looked back over the sitting and then said to myself, okay, was that a good one or a bad one? Which, of course, is a completely irrelevant criteria. There's no way of really calling something good or bad. But even just to think that it was only one thing in that hour, whereas there might have been, and probably were, moments of sleepiness and moments of restlessness and moments of joy and moments of clarity and moments of confusion, constantly changing. It was many, 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 many things. So what's that tendency to kind of lump it all together, make it one thing? It's the same thing we do to the future. It's the same thing we do to our experience right now. And as, as our experience becomes more inert, oppressive, solid, seeming, it becomes more unbearable. As soon as we can see change within what's happening, even if what's happening is really, really hard to to be with, as soon as we see change, we have that sense of, of life itself. We have that sense of possibility. There's so many ways in which we cut off from that. There's a line in a a poem by Pablo Neruda where he says something like, what we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much. Sometimes we create a sense of solidity out of that kind of presumption, as though we are not entering the unknown all of the time, as though we know the end of the story right now. I had a really funny experience, and actually that line came to me last night, when I was listening to Kamala giving her very wonderful talk, which I'd never heard before. And she came to that place where she was telling the story about being in Italy in the train station (laughs) platform. And the woman had the bag, and Kamala went up to her and said, that bag is mine. And then they had their whole interchange. Well, somehow my mind leapt to the assumption that Kamala was wrong. And that, in fact, the bag belonged to the woman. And that there was some whole other resolution that was about to happen. So I waited for it. And I I was really, I was saying, wow, what's she going to say when the woman says, that bag is mine, and she believes it? And she says, oh, it is yours. You know, and I thought, what happens to that? You know, I'm like, and then she she walked away with the bag, Kamala did. And I thought, that's the wrong ending. And I was actually bemused. I thought, I felt strange. I thought, she's not telling the right story. You know, like, what happened? I had just, I created an entire world. And even later, when I saw saw her afterwards, I said, I really thought it was a different story. And how many times do we do that? We create, we have a projection. We create a story. We have a sense of assumption, of presumption. And we miss what is actually happening and that movement and that change. So fundamentally and primarily, we need to have faith in the reality of change. 
and to look for that tendency to create solidity. We actually are guided by that sense of possibility. Otherwise, we would never practice. We would never do something as unusual or unconventional. We would never take a risk. We would never be willing to see things in a different way. I once had a conversation with a psychiatrist in New York City, and we were talking about uh, psychotherapy, and we got engaged in that um, conversation, and he said, we were talking about methodology and systems and, and all this kind of stuff, and then at one point he said, you know, if you put any good psychotherapist up against the wall, that was his phrase, if you put them up against the wall, um, they'd be forced to say that the most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is love. And I said, you know, certainly I would agree with that. But then, you know, those moments when you just hear yourself saying something and you don't know where it comes from? (laughs) I heard myself blurting out, well, for all we know, the single most healing element in the psychotherapeutic relationship is the fact that you show up for your appointment. (laughs) And I thought about it afterwards, and I thought, you know, there's some truth to that, (laughs) perhaps, that we get out of bed, that we are willing to try, that we understand that tomorrow doesn't have to look like today, that, that yesterday doesn't have to govern what we feel about ourselves, that there's change, there's possibility all of the time. That's why we're willing to try. And that leads to another kind of faith, which is really faith in ourselves, which doesn't mean having a solid, egoic sense of who we are, and it doesn't mean having a a kind of arrogance. But it means understanding the capacities that are inherent to our being, that we look at so rarely, that we honor so little. Joseph and I and some friends once, um, somebody gave us a house to do a retreat in, um, in Massachusetts. And when I moved into the bedroom that was going to be my bedroom, I saw that somebody had left a cartoon strip on the desk. It was from the Peanuts comic strip. And um, the characters were Lucy and Charlie Brown. And the first frame of the cartoon, Lucy and Charlie Brown are talking and And Lucy is saying to Charlie Brown, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) And then in the next frame, Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world can I do about that? (laughs) Then in the third and final frame, Lucy says to him, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And... So I left it on the desk, and somehow whenever I was doing walking meditation in the room, my eye would fall upon that line. The problem with you is that you're you. And I think, oh, that's so familiar, <laughs> you know. But what in the world can I do about that? We have, I think very strongly, many of us, what I call now the Lucy voice inside, which says the problem with you is that you're you. To have faith in ourselves means that we can see that for what it is, as conditioned, as impermanent, 
as not reflecting the dire truth of, of who we are. Something that comes and something that goes. And a great deal of the skill of practice that we develop through practice is to hear that kind of voice and not get confused. I sometimes tell the story about um, I was speaking at a yoga conference once uh, because my yoga teacher was teaching there and I wanted to be able to take a class with him. And I knew that I was giving a talk in the afternoon he was teaching in the morning. And my intention in the talk I was giving in the afternoon was to tell the story about Lucy and Charlie Brown and the comic strip. And so I went to the yoga class in the morning and um, he was he was going on and teaching. And then we got to the place, the time where uh, we were supposed to do a wheel pose. And those of you who you know, know, I don't know if she um, did it in the beginning of this uh, retreat or not, but you're lying on your back and you put your hands behind next behind you next to your ears and somehow you're supposed to get up into this arch. And I have never been able to do that pose. And so he said, okay, now we're going to do the pose. And I thought, yeah, I can't do it, so what? You know, put my hands back there. I couldn't get up. And, and he came over to me, because we're quite good friends, and he said, um, did you get up? And I said, no, I never get up. You know, so he helped me up, and, and that was fine. And then he was talking, and I was sort of looking at my watch and saying, well, you know, I have to go get ready to give my talk. And, you know, surely he's not going to make us do it again. And then surely he said, now we're going to do it again. So I thought, well, it doesn't matter. I never get up, you know, so... I'll just try, um, but it won't make any difference. So I put, lied down and put my hands behind my head. And then he said, now I want you to let go of all self-limiting ideas about yourself. And I laughed, and I went up. <laughs> and I was so shocked. I said out loud, I said, oh, my God, I'm up. <laughs> and then I noticed the very next thought that came up in my mind was, you'll never be able to do this again. But because I had the Lucy-Charlie Brown dialogue in my mind, knowing that I was going to use that example in, in the talk, I heard that voice that said, you'll never be able to do this again. And I simply said, chill out, Lucy. <laughs> you know, and that was enough. There it is. We may not be able to change the circumstance we are experiencing it's not always that we have the, the capacity to make everything okay. Very often we can't. But always we have the capacity for that kind of compassion, for love, for greater awareness, for connection. Always. In any condition, in any circumstance. And that leads me to another kind of faith another aspect of faith, which is faith in, in the two qualities that I think make up what we call right effort, and that is aspiration and surrender. Our aspiration, our vision, can be, and I think really needs to be, quite huge. Joseph told the story um, a little bit, briefly, um, when he said, you're now all honorary citizens of the town of Barry, which is where um, our center is, because the Barry town motto is tranquil and alert. And seeing that, actually, in the town square all those years ago was one of the reasons that in our 
uncertainty, we actually decided to buy the place and, and to move in. We figured, well, any town that has a motto like Tranquil and Alert should really have a meditation center in it. <laughs> and some years later, a friend was reading the rather slim volume that's the history of the town of Barry, and she came upon this, the, the main building, I know many of you have been there, the main building of the retreat center of, of IMS um, used to be a private home. It used to be a mansion that was built by somebody named Colonel Gaston, who at one point was lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. And um, it turned out, according to this booklet, <laughs> that uh, Colonel Gaston himself had a motto, which was, you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> when I heard that, I thought, I actually wondered how well he got along with his neighbors, you know, who perhaps were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. But I think of that, you know, how in some ways we really do tend to have a motto. We have an encapsulation of what we believe is possible for us, of what our lives are about, or what they're dedicated to, of what gives them meaning. And that might be live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. But it doesn't have to be. One of the things that I've seen in my own practice and, and in others as well is how we can confront the limitation of that motto, that sense of meaning, that sense of dedication, the um, constraint of it, sometimes the, the rigidity of it. And we can open, we can expand. We can sense a really much bigger aspiration. One of my teachers, a Tibetan teacher named Nyoshal Kenrinpoche, was particularly... Um, pointing to that many times in his teaching, he said something like, and this is you know, just a paraphrase, but it was something like, why is it that your aspiration is so small, you know, is so meager, it's so tiny? Why not aspire to be a completely free being for the sake of all other beings? Why not? And a good deal of what we encounter in practice is all the why not. It's our fear and our withholding and our sense of ourselves and our sense of limitation. And we learn to let go. We learn not to hold faith in all of those, those hindrances and those barriers to really open. The actualization, the realization of those aspirations comes through a process of surrender. Surrender doesn't mean succumbing. It doesn't mean collapsing. It means very much that sense of equanimity, of seeing things as they actually are, of using the moment as it is. Somebody once asked the Buddha, how did you cross the flood, meaning the flood of sorrow, the flood of suffering? And he said, Without lingering and without hurrying, I cross the flood. If I were to linger, I would drown. If I were to hurry, I'd get swept away. 
So without lingering, without hurrying, I cross the flood. We have to be able to acknowledge what actually is. Otherwise, aspiration becomes expectation. It becomes fantasy. We have to be able to use this very moment and not blame ourselves for what we perceive to be a lack without comparing, without judging. We have to be patient. One of my teachers once used this example. He said, imagine you're hitting a piece of wood with an axe because you're trying to split it. And you hit it 99 times, nothing happens. You hit it the 100th time, it breaks open. Usually that 100th time, we then start to consider, well, what's different? Is my stance different? Am I holding the axe differently? But really, it's not that at all. As he went on to use the example, I actually don't know if this is true or not, but he said, it's the mechanical act of weakening the fiber of the wood, one blow after blow after blow. And because of that accumulation, at some point, it breaks open. Of course, it doesn't feel very good. Number 35, number 36, number 37, nothing seems to be happening. And yet it's only through that perseverance that it will break open. And even beyond that, it's not an accumulation. Beyond that sense of the mechanical act, it's the fact that we keep going. It's the fact that we offer our hearts. It's our endeavor. It's our our taking a risk, our being present, our showing up. That's actually what's transforming. That's the breaking open, whether something happens to the wood in the end or not. We need that, that kind of patience, that kind of surrender. This is actually how dreams come true, is step by step. It's moment by moment. The combination of aspiration and surrender comes forth in the form of diligence. That's right effort. It's that wholehearted, immense, open aspiration, without limit, without constraint, being realized right here and now with what actually is right here and now. Otherwise, it's all like a story we tell ourselves. There's a very simple example, and many examples, as you've noticed, of course, um, in the Buddhist tradition are very, very simple. So here's another simple one that was very important to me from the first time I heard it. And that was... When the Buddha said, the mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving-kindness moment by moment, the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop. As soon as I heard that, as I said, I loved it, because as soon as I heard it, I saw myself standing by that bucket doing one of two things. One was looking at it and glorying in the fantasy of how extraordinary it was going to be to be fully enlightened. Imagining myself floating down the streets of New York in my white sari with a beatific smile (laughs) without bothering to add the next drop, without having the patience or the humility 
to be present with what was right then. The other thing I could see myself doing was standing there by that bucket, looking in in desolation and thinking, oh, it's really pretty empty, isn't it? And feeling bereft, feeling defeated. Again, without bothering to do what actually I needed to do, which was add the next drop. Since that time, when I first heard it, I've added another um, unfolding to the image, which is standing by our bucket and ignoring it completely to peer over into someone else's bucket and say, oh, you know, how are they doing over there? But we have every possibility in front of us right here and now. And it's not a question of time. It's not a question of filling the bucket slowly, you know, like this drop isn't enough and and in five years, you know, maybe it'll, it'll be more full. Every drop in some way fills it. Every drop is the completion of what we need to do. And then we veer off and then we come back. I used to think early on in my practice that mindfulness was a state somewhere remote, distant, to be sought after a great deal of struggle. It was almost like I thought, well, it's at the top of the mountain and I will get there someday. I will have a moment of mindfulness. And then I realized after some time that it was completely available. It was absolutely accessible. It was just not something that was um, steady because it came and it went and I had not really cultivated much of an ability to return to it, to come back to it. But it was right here. I used to think that mindfulness meant a certain kind of experience that was deep, that was subtle. And then I realized at some point that we really could be mindful of anything that the point wasn't to create or produce or manufacture a certain experience that was refined and lovely and serene, but to have as much continuity of mindfulness as possible of any old thing, whatever was happening. Because that is the realization of the teachings right there. And it's something we can do to take an experience that's difficult or coarse or or unpleasant, and make it refined and subtle and lovely is beyond us. That's just grasping. Once when we were sitting with um, this Tibetan teacher, Nyosha Ken Rinpoche, there's a small group of us, maybe 30 of us, maybe even less, 25. And uh, we all had an interview with him, about half an hour interview over the course of several days. Then having seen each one of us to talk about our meditation experience, he got up in front of the group to give a talk. And what he said was, the teachings of Long Chempa, who is a, a great Tibetan saint in, in his lineage, he said, the teachings of Long Chempa are to rest the mind in repose, not to rest it in grasping. And I could only think that his accumulated experience from the 25 or 30 of us, which was, was to see a lot of grasping, And so he made a point of addressing it. In this moment to add this drop, 
At this point in the retreat, we usually segue to how do we do that in daily life? What does that mean in daily life? For almost everybody, that means trying to have a daily practice. Usually we say sitting practice. It can be a walking practice. It's some period of dedication where we are bringing the things we care most about to life so that they're not abstract, they're not deadened, and they're not remote. It's not something that we think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great someday to really come alive to my experience? We do it right here and now. If we have a period of the day when that's what it's about, it's really very important. It's easy to say that one can be mindful doing anything, and of course that's true. But will we be mindful doing anything if we don't spend some time really devoting ourselves to it? It's unlikely. It's possible, but it's difficult. I remember when I first went to India, um, I had been a, a student, an undergraduate student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and I'd studied a little Buddhism in my Asian philosophy course, which is what inspired me to go to India to begin with. And I went with a very strong yearning to understand myself, to come out of the the pain that I was in and the confusion that I was in. But I also went with a certain feeling that I really kind of got what Buddhism was about. It was sort of like I got what Kamala's story was about. And so (laughs) when I entered my first 10-day meditation retreat, which I did, not having sat for even one minute <laughs> beforehand, I had that, that attitude, like, I, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I get this stuff, and, you know, I'd written term papers on, you know, karma, and, you know, I, I really felt confident that I knew what it was all about, and it probably didn't take 15 minutes, you know, of sitting there when I thought, I don't know what this is about. What does it mean when the Buddha says you can experience pain without being crushed by it? What in the world does that mean? (laughs) You know, when I'm not writing a paper on it, but I'm, I'm trying to live it. So if for nothing else, to drop down a level from our easy assumption of mastery... Um, because we, we get something on a theoretical level, to drop down into really breathing life into it, it's important to really practice. Every sitting, just like every sitting here, can be completely different. Some of the factors that support um, a, a kind of depth and concentration are very transitory. You know, the silence, the lack of anything else to do, it can be quite difficult in daily life. But the most important thing is is the doing of it. Here again, we come to my very favorite thing in the world, which is the Hindsight Meditation Society. It's just important to do it. It's so easy to feel discouraged. You know, some days 
we feel very quiet and serene. And other days, we're agitated, we're upset, we're sleepy. Most of us are so uh, content-oriented and so attached to our experience as a validation for the merit of our being that we feel exhilarated in those serene and lovely times and we feel devastated when things are difficult, just like we do in life. I once went to one of my teachers, this man named Manindra, when I was living in India, as I think I said this in one of the groups, you know, living in India, I wasn't, we weren't always on intensive retreat. There were times when we were just living there and like anybody else, trying to maintain a daily practice. And I was having a very hard time doing that. Whenever things felt really wonderful, I would think, great, I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life. And whenever things felt really difficult, I would give up. I would say, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. It's not good enough. Something's wrong. It only works on retreat. Whatever it was. And I finally went to Menindra and described some of this pattern. And he looked at me and he said, for you, I have a piece of advice. He said, just put your body there. He said, every day, you just put your body there. Some days it's going to feel one way. Other days it's going to feel another way. Just put your body there. (coughs) And sometimes I think that was the best piece of advice I got in all those years in India. To realize that it's up to us, I guess from one point of view, it can feel kind of lonely. But from another point of view, it's tremendously empowering. That we have such a huge ability to transform our lives. We simply need to do the work. It's not that some of us are capable and others are not. It's not even that some situations make it impossible. But we have to do it. We have to trust that we can do it. We have to hold that kind of faith. So we say sit every day. There are also ways and times of just bringing the practice into your life in a conscious fashion. Doing something like metta, if you choose to, in the supermarket, in the waiting room. There are so many opportunities, there's so many times when we are simply wasting time, which means wasting our lives. Very soon after we opened IMS, Steve, who came there as a, a meditator and then a staff person, wrote a kind of mock brochure for the center, and he had on it things that it makes a lot of sense whether here or there or any retreat center. He had things like come to IMS and have all the tea you could ever drink (laughs) or come to IMS and get to use institutional cutlery. (laughs) And he also had as a kind of um, mock motto on this brochure, it's better to do nothing than to waste your time. (laughs) And I've always wanted to keep that one. Because I thought it was really great. It's better to do nothing than to waste your time. Because wasting our time is like wasting our lives. And there are many moments 
when either we could be still, be present with ourselves, come back to our experience, or actively be extending the force of goodwill into the world through metta, rather than wasting our time. It takes a great deal of consciousness, but that's all it takes. Many times when I myself am sitting in retreat, say in Barry, and I'm uh, leaving the retreat and I get into my car, I have this funny experience because I watch my hand reach out to turn on the radio. And it's a funny moment because I genuinely don't want to hear anything. You know, I don't want to hear in that moment. I don't want to hear music. I don't want to hear the news. But because I'm no longer in retreat, it's somehow no longer acceptable just to be there in the silence, in the space. And if I'm mindful enough, I can watch my hand go out and I can just bring it back. I can come back. So our whole lives become an opportunity to, to experience both that quality of presence and the extension of loving-kindness when we remember. And then the last thing I want to talk about in terms of faith has to do with, in a way I guess you could call it faith in good-heartedness. It's faith in what happens when we have that sense of possibility, that sense of aspiration, that sense of our own capacity to aim the mind, to aim the heart toward, toward goodness, to act in a way in the world that is expressive of our deepest values, that, that recognizes our interconnectedness, that sees how important it is that each one of us be a force for the good. To use all of the uh, the energy that's liberated through our practice, the mindfulness, the sensitivity that comes to really care and to take care of one another. We do that on many, many different levels. We do that simply on the level of the precepts of really um, bringing them into our, our experience in a way that leads to wakefulness, that, that leads to a, a kind of compassionate experience, both of ourselves and of others. The Buddha once said, I think quite beautifully, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And part of what we, what we experience in, in the pain of our own regret and remorse is that that felt sense of not having loved ourselves enough so that we have created harm or we've, we've torn the fabric of harmony in some way. And it really does hurt. If we really loved ourselves, we would never harm another. And so we look at each of those, those precepts and, and take them to heart. You know, what does it mean not to harm, not to kill? not to steal, not to commit sexual misconduct, not to use our sexual energy in a way that's harmful to ourselves or to others, not to lie, 
not to avoid our experience, our, our genuine experience of what's happening right now by taking intoxicants, by dulling the mind, by being heedless. It's a tremendous avenue of exploration. I know we've been talking about, advent- I've been talking about adventure a lot, you know, in a lot of the uh, times I've answered questions, I've, I've said, well, you know, it's like an adventure. And I think, here's another adventure. And how rare do we think of that as an adventure, as a way of experiencing life so that we look, we examine. We don't just take the easy way and we don't just take the, the convenient way. But we do bring all of those qualities of, of wakefulness into that level of experience. You know, none of this has to do with being self-righteous or... Um, holding ourselves apart or being judgmental. It is. It's an enormous adventure. Some of you have heard me tell the story, probably, of um, years ago we'd gone to Burma and we're sitting with Upandita and somebody asked him a question about the last precept, which is not to take intoxicants that cloud the mind or create heedlessness. And um, there are many different interpretations of that precept, both personal interpretations and um, within different schools of Buddhism, there are different interpretations, you know, uh, is moderation okay, you know. And you could tell, one could tell sort of in the tone of voice of the person who asked the question that he was really hoping that Upandita would say, you know, one glass of wine at dinner is nothing, you know, <laughs> don't worry about it. And... Uh, instead, Upandita said, in response to his question, he said, well, this is the only way you can um, take an intoxicant and not have it be breaking the precept. He said, if somebody ties you hand and foot and pours it down your mouth and you don't enjoy it, (laughs) then it's not breaking the precept. So that seemed extreme. But then I had the thought, based on that, why not, for a period of time, just not drink anything? I mean, I hardly drank anything before either, but I thought, why not? You know, just see what it's like. You know, so this isn't to say that his interpretation of the precept is necessarily, you know, going to have to govern your own life, but why not? Actually, just check it out. You know, move... Uh, in those directions, just to see, just to experiment, just to learn about the the nature of what really brings us happiness. You know, it is. It's a tremendous adventure. And then to have faith in the power of good-heartedness in terms of our own actions. And this goes back to what I was saying the other night, how so many times, in so many ways, we do something and we don't know what will happen, what has happened. We can come back to understanding and honoring our intention. We can hold faith in having acted as skillfully as we can and continually learning about how to be skillful. And then we need to let go. I had an experience once that really, as far as I can tell, really changed me utterly 
in this regard. And that was, it's a little bit complicated, but um, in that year, that very famous 1984 retreat with Saito Upandita, when we brought him to Barry, he was teaching for three months and he was giving talks six nights a week. And so we had a, a really fantastic translator present for that course. So somebody came up to me at the end of the retreat and said, wouldn't it be great to put together a book of his talks since we had this really extraordinary translator? And I thought, oh, you know, that would be really great. So I, I kind of spearheaded the project. I um, found the money and hired a transcriber and um, found a publisher and, and a friend of mine did uh, an enormous amount of editing on the transcriptions to make it into a book. And it became a book which is called In This Very Life, The Liberation Teachings of the Buddha. And when it was done, I thought, well, isn't this nice? You know, he um, has a very uh, powerful teaching voice. It's, it's very pure. It's very authentic. It's quite classical. And the editing had made it quite accessible. So I thought, this is great. You know, this is going to be a book that will serve those few people who really appreciate that kind of classical idiom. It'll serve them very well. And in my mind, I put it in the minor good deed category. I thought, well, I did something nice for my teacher. And, you know, we, this whole group, had done something nice for our teacher. And, and um, you know, for those few people who would really understand it, it will have an enormous benefit. And then I just forgot about it. And so that's the first part of the story. The second part of the story has to do with um, the woman that I mentioned, Aung San Suu Kyi, who's the leader of the democracy movement in Burma, and who uh, in that period of time was under house arrest for six years. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 in the course of her being under arrest. And when she was first placed under arrest, um, it seemed clear, and I think it was, was true, that she could have left Burma at any time to go back to England where her husband and her children were, but she would never be allowed back in. And so she chose and has still chosen to stay uh, for the sake of the people of Burma and the hopes and dreams that, that reside in her for democracy. So um, she didn't see her husband for years. She couldn't raise her children. Um, she suffered quite a bit of, of deprivation because, as I said, you know, she wouldn't take money from the military dictatorship. She, um, she suffered a lot. She developed a heart condition. Her hair fell out. She was so weak, sometimes she couldn't get out of bed, and yet she stayed. And being a Buddhist, having been born a Buddhist, she decided she was going to try to use this time as a time to learn how to meditate, to deepen her spiritual life but she didn't really know how. And so, as she later reported, she would sit on the bed and she would grit her teeth and she would try to force the thoughts out of her mind, and you all know that state. <laughs> and she got more and more and more tense. And then, one day, her husband sent into her Upandita's book. And she said she used it to learn how to meditate. When that particular period of house arrest ended and um, for a brief period her life was much freer and she was allowed to meet Westerners and journalists and so on. She said many times and she, she actually wrote 
something and said that that book was the main source of her spiritual support. So I heard that. (laughs) And I thought, in a million years, I never would have imagined that what I thought of as a minor good deed would have a much bigger effect than I ever could have planned for or created through kind of a mechanistic determination. You know, she had long been one of my uh, heroes, and I often had the feeling inside, boy, I would do anything to be able to help her, but what can I do? You know, so there it was. You know, I and this group of people, because I think each one of us had that feeling, were, were stunned. So that was the point. I said this the other day. That was the point that I decided that someday I was going to write a book called Basically Clueless because I saw we don't know. And it made me determined to move toward good-heartedness, to actualize possibilities that I saw, to do good things, even if they seemed very little, even if they seemed hardly of any account, because we never know. And all we can do is use the opportunity in front of us to take a risk, to have faith in, in this moment, and to try to do the good that we can in the world. So I'll close with a poem kind of along those lines. It's a poem called Famous from a poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. And the collection that it's in is called Words Under the Words. She writes, The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds, watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it, and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets. Sticky children in grocery lines, famous as the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.